everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name is Tina with my friends, Jane and Wendy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hello. Hello. We're good. <laughs> Praise God. I'm so glad you guys are here with me, and I'm so glad we get the opportunity to talk to you guys, our viewers, and answer your Bible questions. We had quite a few come in this last week, so we're super excited about all the response we've gotten from our website. Um, if you have a question that, uh, just so you know, if you're new here, welcome. If you're returning, we're so glad to have you back. And um, we just want to let everybody know if you are new, if you would like to have your uh, question formally submitted to our show, be sure to um, plug it in at our website at bibleask.org forward slash live. You can plug it in anytime during the week. But because right now we're live, you're welcome to put any questions or comments down in um, the feed below and just, yeah, hit us up with any questions, comments. We just want to say hi. We love to hear from our audience and we're so grateful that you guys are tuning in and sharing time with us in God's word. So um, before we go ahead and dive into some great questions we got this week, uh, Jay or Wendy, you want to uh, start us out with a quick word of prayer? Sure, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to now gather together to dig into your word. And as always, we need your spirit to help us interpret, to discern spiritual things and we just ask especially that we walk away closer to you and closer to each other and this we pray in the name of your son jesus amen amen thank you so much so again we are so grateful to you our viewers and if again if you're there give us a shout out say hi um if you have comments or questions we were more than happy to address them live on the show tonight um, so without further ado, though, Wendy, do we have some questions? We do. Let's go ahead and get our first question up. All right. So the first question is from Greg. And Greg is asking, I'm currently researching some words that are defined a little different in some of the newer versions. But as I was doing this, I looked at the 1599 Geneva Bible in Isaiah 1321, and it included the word limb as an animal. I cannot find any information on this. Maybe you won't either, but I am asking the question, do you know what a limb is? So th thank you, Greg, for the question. And I did dig into the word, and I this is definitely a new one for me, and I, I'm intrigued. I want to read more on the Geneva, Geneva Bible. Definitely a very important Bible for how we got to the current English versions we have today. And as far as I could come up with, it just means limb or appendage. That seems to be all sources I find say that's what the L-I-M meant in that older English. So uh, maybe does it quite fit like an animal or maybe it does, but that's the best I could come up with. Limb or appendage. Almost like our L-I-M-B modern word for, for limb. So that is my answer. <laughs> nice short one. That's finally. like the shortest answer I think I've ever heard you give. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make it up with the next one. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's go ahead and get our next question up here. All right. So Shahid is, is asking, but nothing is known about Pro Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas is stated on your website. But what about the tradition that says Prochorus was bishop of Nic Nicomedia, appointed by, uh, I think this would be St. John, and yeah. was also his scribe. 
What is the source for this tradition? Similarly, there is a tradition about Parmenas. He preached in Asia Minor and was bishop of Soli, a city in either Sicilia or, or Cyprus. Or Cilicia or Cyprus. I am interested in knowing the source of these traditions and their authenticity. Would appreciate it if you could help. Thanks. Sorry for all the tongue twisted there. <laughs> all right. Well, um, a long question and another short answer is, a, I guess, what I would say to that too. So, thank you so much for this great question. And um, I mean, just to quote, first of all, um, or just to look at, you know, what the people you're talking about. As soon as I heard this, I was like, oh, that sounds like. Um, you know, the New Testament uh, people, uh, if we see in the book of Acts chapter six and verse five, and basically that's where all these people, as well as a few others are listed, like the great Stephen, who who was the great martyr um, in the early church. Um, there's just some really cool things about that. But as far as um, these brethren specifically that you're asking about, you know, they have some traditions that, you know, that they did other things than we see outside of the Bible. So I want to just show you quickly, um, Acts chapter six, verse five. Um, excuse me. Did I say that wrong? No, I think I just wrote it down wrong. <laughs> no, it is six, five and saying, um, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy ghost and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parnamis and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So this, if you look up um, those names that you mentioned in the Bible, that's pretty much the only place that you see those specific people, um, especially specifically uh, Prochorus. And um, I have read, you know, there's different traditions saying that, you know, he worked with John and he was like his scribe and helped him write, you know, some of the, the Bible and, and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of traditions that are out there, but the thing is, um, that's what makes them a tradition because, um, you know, when you look at the, the, you know, definition in a dictionary of, you know, a religious tradition, it's just basically, um, you know, word for word, the definition is a doctrine believed to have divine authority, though it not be in scripture. And, um, you know, Jesus, I think, you know, some traditions, they're okay to just be like, okay, maybe, um, but Overall, you know, as far as, you know, saying something as a fact, you know, Bible ask isn't going to endorse saying, you know, they, they did all these things if it's based on a tradition and not on the word of God, because, you know, we base everything on God's word. And Jesus said something very important in the book of Mark chapter seven in verse 13. And I'll just read that really quick as basically uh, my answer. But, um, you know, Jesus warned about, you know, holding tradition above scripture and Jesus basically said in Mark 7, 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered and many such like things you do. Um, and obviously Jesus, the context here is that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are, you know, basically saying people had to do things or, you know, go above what God's law had actually said or God's word had actually said. Um, and so it was a little bit different of a context, but, you know, as far as these traditions, I don't know the, the origin. I did kind of try to find out some things, um, you know, they're just a tradition is just something that people kind of say, and it gets passed along, you know, over and over again, it, it may or not be true. So um, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't have more of an answer to give you other than uh, these um, traditions are just that they're, you know, they're something people believe, but they're not based on scripture. And so um, I don't know the exact source. It's just probably something people have said. Um, and 
I don't know if it's something that maybe somebody just kind of theorized. Um, and I know that it, some of these um, traditions are also very debatable in modern theology as well. So um, you can take them with a grain of salt and, you know, pray about them. But hopefully one day we'll get to know <laughs> exactly who all these great men of God were um, when we get to heaven. So um, I hope that that's uh, an okay answer. I, I apologize. I don't have more as far as historical evidence and that sort of thing, because I don't really find a whole lot there. Um, it's just, you know, what some churches, like I think some Orthodox churches and um, other, you know, churches just kind of believe, um, but there's no biblical evidence and there wasn't anything substantial I found in historical evidence either. So that's it. <laughs> Jerwin, any other thoughts on that one? Nope. <laughs> I was totally doing Our answers are short and sweet. Nope. You're muted, Tina. Didn't hear that. I'm muted. Really? Still? Do you hear anything? No. I don't hear anything either. I'm so I hear me. Uh, <laughs> That's oh, we muted director. her there. Oh, our director. <laughs> oh, you muted. Okay, good. I was we like, pushed uh -oh. the, we, we pushed our mute um mute earbud my uh, button instead of our mute yeah microphone button <laughs> that's okay well thank goodness i'm glad hey that's how you all know out there we are live so again <laughs> if you have a question or some comment anything live you want answered here and now we're more than happy to talk to you and and um you know join in the conversation so thank you guys yeah. so much and Too many yeah, buttons. Right, or maybe you should just ask like yeah if you're tuning in like please let us know you're here give us a shout out ask yes. a question add to our answers we, usually people add really good comments so please uh yeah. please participate in the conversation we'd love to have you join us exactly all right let's go ahead and get our next question up all right so stephanie is asking what does it mean to take god's name in vain a pastor on YouTube said that saying a certain curse word that is that starts with a G and a D means that you are asking God to curse something or someone. Is that true? And if so, would he? If he did that, would what would that look like? Aren't we protected by God from our enemies? It seems to me that certain words were not said by Christians when I was growing up, but now are seen as just meaningless words. I'm sorry if this is a lot. Thanks. All right. Yes. Very important question. Very important. Thank you for asking, Stephanie. And before I answer, I want to give a little shout out to Rachel. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Glad to have you with us again. And uh, anybody else, please uh, let us know you're here. So let's dive into the name of the Lord. I think this is one of the most fascinating topics we could study for weeks, maybe on just what the name of the Lord is. But let's talk about the misuse of it. So. This comes in the context of the Ten Commandments, and four of which concern our relationship with God. One is about our allegiance to God. The second commandment is about our faithfulness to God. Our, the third one is about reverence, a reverence of God. And the fourth one is about our being present, our presence with God, especially showing up when God wants us to be there. So, reverence. Um, let's look at Exodus 20, verse 7. This is that third commandment it reads you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain 
And I, I like the NIV too. Um, instead of using the word vain, the NIV says misuse. So NIV says for Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold you hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. But these are still not useful terms, right? What does vain mean? What does misuse mean? Let's go back to the original Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for vain or misuse is the uh, the word shav. And shav can mean emptiness, vanity, falsehood, nothingness, lying, worthlessness. So, uh, and, and interestingly, shav comes from the word show, which could mean revenge, devastation, ruin, waste. So, so against this background, I think what God is trying to tell us here is he doesn't want us to destroy the meaning and the significance of his name. Like, don't make his name profane, as in just ordinary, common, you know, like any other name. And he doesn't want us to misrepresent him or tarnish his reputation. Uh, did you want to chime in, Tina? Okay. Um, reputation, making him, making it out to be something that it's not. So God doesn't want that to happen. That's sort of what he's sort of trying to say here. I, I would, in my own words, I would say. And of course, the Jews took this very seriously, and they basically said, okay, to be on the safe side, let's never use the actual name of the Lord. So they never pronounce it as they believe it, it, it really should be pronounced, and they would never fully write it out either. So that's why you hear about the Tetragrammaton, the YV, sorry, YHVH, which we pronounce uh, Jehovah or, or Yahweh. Uh, that that is missing the vowels. So so there was always this argument that okay nobody knows how exactly to pronounce it. And Jehovah is taking the the, the name Adonai and plugging the, or the letters from that and plugging it into into the the Y H V H. So interesting fact on that one. Um, so. So let's take a step back, though. Like Again, what's the name of the Lord? And a lot of us just focus on the Jehovah or Yahweh and not using that name. But also can apply, I would say, to the name of Jesus and his name. And, and so his name list really is Jesus the Christ. And, and how many of us then go around saying, I am Christian? I am a Christian. Right there and says, you're using the name of God. And you're connecting yourself with God, sort of saying you're his representative and you're associated with him. And now people are going to be judging God based on what you do. So we really should pause every time we're about to say we're Christian and really reflect on what we are saying there. And I'll tell you, like even the angels of heaven, like look how they they handle the name of the of the Lord. Revelation 4 8. It says the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who is and was to come. I mean, this, 
So this is like the scenes from heaven. And this is not just a revelation. If you look in Isaiah, Isaiah saw a similar thing. Holy, holy, holy. God is just, there's such a gap between us and him. He's so far beyond us, so far separated. And God wants us to remember that. Not because he wants a Lord over us necessarily, but it's even for our benefit. Because then it puts all of us humans on the same plane. It helps keep us humble. God, Jesus was able to step away from all this and humble himself. He proved that God is willing to also be humble, um, but he is totally deserving of, of whatever glory and exaltation he has. Again, yeah, like Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, Christ, and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is like God. This is the name above all names. Whether you're talking about Jesus or the Father, I mean, they're way, way, way beyond us, way above us. We should respect that again for our benefit and because why? Because we love God. As Jesus said in Matthew 2, verses 37 to 38, he says, You know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. It comes down to love. Those first four that I talked about are about how you love God. And if you love God, you're going to. Use his name like you would someone you actually do love, right? Like, how do you speak to your spouse? How do you use the name of your children? How do you use the name of your parents? Do you use their names like a curse word? Do you use it in a, a derogatory manner? And how about your family name? Your your name in the your your family, like your last name, or maybe it's the name you married into, like. How do you handle that name? Do you bring honor to your family by how you act and by how you live and what you do? It's all the same. When you're in the family of Christ, we are telling people about Jesus, his character, what he is like. And, and this is where, um, I think this verse, Matthew 7, verses uh, 21 to 23 is so important. So Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So you say God is your Lord, but Jesus says you might not enter in heaven. It says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's the one that makes, us in, makes it in. Verse 22, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? and done many wonders in your name. So they're doing everything in the name of Jesus. As a Christian, I do this. In the name of Christ, I do that. They're doing it left and right, and they're seeming like the religious people, um, seemingly doing things right that God might want. But what does Jesus say? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Just because we call ourselves a Christian doesn't mean we really are one. And unfortunately, the world doesn't know that. If you call yourself a Christian, people will take you at your word and then judge Christ 
by how you are acting. And they will judge Christ and God by, again, how you speak of God. And so we have to so carefully, not just what we say, but how we say it should always be in our mind. Because people's relationships with God ultimately are, are at stake. People are turning away from God, rejecting him because they don't see the real God through God's people, through his church. And it is so sad. And I think those are... This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. Like, there's going to be a lot of people surprised when, he, when the day of judgment comes because they thought, well, I was a Christian. I went to church and did all these things. But Jesus is going to point out, no, you turned away a lot of my flock. And that's going to be a very sad moment. But let's end on this. Um, really, again, God is going to give us a name, and including his name. Like we're going, we're, he's adopting us. And when you get adopted, you get the name of the person who adopted you, right? And that's what's happening here. So Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the name Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And that's going to be amazing. That's going to go beyond just being a part of his family. The more we have his name, the more we have his character, and we get to be sharing in just, if God is love, we will become like love, too. And I can't wait for that day, and let us all strive today to be more like him. Amen. And I think also, just to um, more directly answer um, a couple of the questions here on uh, you know, if, if we state this, are we saying that we're asking God to curse someone or something? And in a sense, yes, that is, you know, what that is. And if so, would he, well, would God, if we ask God to curse someone, would God curse someone? I, I, oh, that's a Bible study in of itself. <laughs> I, My personal belief is, no, that's contrary to God's character uh, his goal is to love people and uh he wants us to know his love but he may withhold you know there are times when god does um withhold his protection of, of people but not necessarily because we say something yeah i mean did, what is a curse what are the curses like noah called on his family whether the curse is sort of that jacob talked about you know and, and did god curse because Noah cursed Canaan. I mean, it's uh, it gets complicated, but yeah, ultimately it is. If you look at those curses, God is just letting people suffer the consequences of of their sins. That is ultimately what it is, and and so yeah, God wants you. We, there was a story where the Israelite, where um, sorry, the disciples got really angry and want and said, "Jesus, let's call down fire on these people." And do you remember how Jesus reacted? Not too well. He's like, no, it's like he always tells his disciples, you guys completely miss who I am. That's not what I'm about. I'm not here to destroy. I'm not here to have revenge. Um, you know, God came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. John 3, 17. And I think, I think in this kind of situation, that the greater risk is to the person who is using God's name 
in a vain, profane kind of way. That's, you know, we are called to to honor his name and to use it in this kind of a way is is really upon us and separates us from God instead of drawing us near to God. Exactly. Because so, God is love. Yeah. He wants us to be loving, de- demonstrating that love, being love. Yeah. So God wants us to draw near to him, to his love, and to know that more and to deepen that connection. So using his name in these kinds of ways is, is contrary to that. Dina, really got anything to add? Yeah. But first, I want to uh, um, acknowledge Nancy Gable. She has a really great comment. Um, where she says it's mm. sad that so many Christians, in quotations, give Christianity a bad name. I think that's very true, mm. and I think that's definitely what you touched on, Jay. And um, I just want to kind of answer the second part of the question a little bit, if that's okay. At least what mm-hmm. I see is being asked, if if I'm understanding this right, um, to our our viewer Stephanie. Uh, and again, Stephanie, thank you so much for this great question. Um, and basically, you're saying, you know if you're asking God to curse someone or something, is that true? Would he do it? And, um, you know, like when he's saying it goes against the very character of God. And so just because, um, you know, somebody says, you know, GD, this person or this thing, that doesn't mean, I mean, God is much bigger than us. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, you know, just like you're, a, if you're a parent and your kid goes, you know, you know, darn this thing or whatever, you know, if, if you know my kid said mom curse this thing i'd be i'd look at her and go like no what i do that's not who i am you know what i mean i would tell my child no and so just because yeah. somebody you know says god curse this that doesn't mean god's going I mean, to because god is from god's perspective father yeah i mean so, from god's perspective it's like you have two kids and one kid is asking the parent to like curse and do bad things to the other kid yeah yeah and it's like no i'm sorry i am the parent you're the child that's not how it's gonna go and so you know just because we say you know god whatever darn something no god's not necessarily gonna do that um that's not his character at all and um you know there's something uh, just a really quick verse in first timothy three chapter six and verse one excuse me, first Timothy chapter six and verse one, I apologize. It says, um, basically, you know, the apostle here is saying, um, let as many servants as are under the yoke, count their masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. So we have to be very careful of the doctrine we are preaching. And it sounds like this person's doctrine is not quite right. And you really have to be careful about doctrine. Like we kind of talked about, you know, we always refer back to Isaiah chapter eight, I believe it's verse 20, where it says, if um, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, to the Bible, there is no light in them. So if this person is not speaking in you know harmony with God's word, we really don't need to be paying attention to some doctrine that's just not biblical. Um, you know, and again, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, um, he, uh, the apostle Paul warns us, don't be carried about with diverse or strange doctrines. You know, be careful about, you know, a doctrine that's presented to you because it may or may not be true. Even if it's mixed a little bit with the Bible, you really need to to um, compare it to the Bible. Um, and um, 
all that. And when we look at this doctrine, if, you know, if you curse somebody in the name of God, that doesn't mean they're going to be cursed. And it's actually very, when I hear that, that breaks my heart because it's a complete opposite of the doctrine that Jesus taught. When you look in Luke chapter six and verse 28, Jesus says, bless them that curse you and pray for them, which despitefully use you. So the very nature of Jesus is to bless people who are cursing them. And mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, if you want to have my heart, my character of love, you need to bless people, even if they are cursing at you or whatever mean thing they're doing. Your, your heart is not like the world. Your heart is to be the heart of Christ. And the heart of Christ is to bless and to love and, and to give and, you know, and, and have that kind of spirit. And so any spirit, any doctrine that goes against, you know, God's explicit word here, like we've just seen, don't pay no attention. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of false doctrine that's out there and we just have to focus on the truth. So, yeah. And there's so many verses. If you study them, the secret to praying and having your prayers be answered is to pray according to the will of God. Mm -hmm. And so good praying is really getting to understand God, what he wants, and then asking for that. And so God doesn't want curses. God doesn't want anybody lost. God wants to see everybody brought unto salvation. Mm -hmm. And so that is the prayer we should really be asking for. Yeah. And he wants his spirit to go forth. And these curses are contrary to his yeah. spirit. So, yeah. So all good points. All right. Shall we get our next question up? So help me is asking, how can I cha change and be sure I am saved for years? Uh, how can I change and be sure I am saved? For years, I have been asking the Lord into my heart and also been water baptized many times, but keep going back to my old ways. What is wrong with me? Why can't I be filled with the Holy Spirit? That is a really, 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 really good question. Help me. And I really appreciate yeah. that because, um, you know, I think this is just such an honest question. And I think anybody who's a Christian has can completely um, identify with this. Um, I definitely, you know, this resonates with me as well. I think with anybody who's, you know, just trying to overcome sin in their lives. And um, I just want you to know that these feelings are biblical too. Um, the apostle Paul struggled with this very thing. And I, I almost wonder if you're quoting what he said in the book of Romans chapter seven and eight. And so I just want you to see these, this really quick. I'll try to read through this pretty quick, quick and summarize it. I apologize, quick and summarize it. Um, just so that you know that you're not alone and that you're not totally lost because even the apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist, you know, missionary that the world has ever seen, you know, felt the same way. Um, and so um, I just want to show you Romans, Romans chapter seven and verse 15 starts where he says, for that, which I do, I'll, I do, I allow not. Um, actually, let me go ahead and put this in the new King James version because it's a little bit um, easier to, to read. Um, so I'm just having to change my version really quick but I think it'll be a little bit more clear. So basically, again, uh, the apostle Paul says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I want to do, I, I agree um, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that's what I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So basically, you know, the apostle Paul is here is talking about this struggle. He's like, in my mind, you know, I want to do what is holy, righteous, good. But yet I'm finding myself going back to these terrible things, you know, this practice, whatever it is, that's not right. Um, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't agree with doing it, but he finds himself, you know, doing the <laughs> things again and again. Um, and uh, so, but he says something really key here um, in the next few verses and uh, starting in verse 21, he says, I find then a law that evil is present with me and the one who wills to do good. So. Uh, basically, Paul is saying, you know, when I look at the law, I see, you know, the things that are wrong. That's the purpose of God's law is for us to see what's wrong in us. The law never saves us. It just shows us our condition, just kind of like a mirror. The Bible talks about the law being a mirror. It shows us who we really are. And when we look at God's law, we go, oh, I'm not so great. Am I? Um, I once had a friend say, I'm, you know, who wasn't a Christian saying, I I keep God's law. I'm a pretty good person. I'm like, well, do you lie? Well, yeah, sometimes. Do you steal? Well, sort of, you know, and all these, I was like, you really keep a lot of commandments, you know, when they really started looking at them, because that's the purpose of the law is to show us, hey, we have a need of a savior. We're sinners. Um, and I think, you know, we can all identify with this. Um, and keep as you keep reading, it says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So basically his body is like feeling in bondage to sin, but in his mind, he knows that there's a better law, the law of God, and he wants to, to keep God's law. And in verse 24, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he finally says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, he doesn't stop there because if you know anything about the Bible, it wasn't originally written in chapters. It's um, It was just written. The books are just written as they were. Um, and in verse Romans chapter 8, in verse 1 um, through, I believe, verses, sorry, uh, verse 10. I won't read all of it, but I do want to just point out something uh, really cool that Paul says here. Um, he says, first of all, there is now no no condemnation condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, which is basically what you're talking about. Like, you know, if we can walk in the spirit, we're going to be fine. We need to, you know, have the Holy Spirit and walk in it because like it says in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I hear what you're saying. You know, you, we don't want to walk according to the flesh, which does things that are contrary to God's will. Uh, we want to walk according to the spirit, which allows us to be like Christ. And um, we know that Christ never did any sin. Christ was obedient and he was, you know, perfect, um, you know, in inside and out, Jesus was, um, you know, perfectly obedient and holy. Um, and I'll kind of, uh, 
I think I'll stop there as far as, you know, that portion. But if you want to read Romans chapter eight, verses one through 10, I think that's just a really, um, you know, beautiful summary of basically how we want to um, live in the spirit um, and have the spirit of Christ um, and not have, you know, basically live according to the flesh. Now, as far as how, um, that's a good question because um, I, I, I've definitely struggled with this myself as well. And um, I want to just point you to a few things um, that Jesus embodied. And so, um, because the thing is, if we are doing things that are according to the flesh, how do we know we're doing something that's according to the flesh, something that's wrong? Well, we know because it, it's contrary to God's word or God's law. And, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, that, you know, that he didn't come to destroy the law, but um, that he came to fulfill it. And so we definitely, you know, we need to know God's law, not that the law in any way is going to save us. Absolutely not. But rather that um, it's just going to point us to the savior. Um, just as Jesus said, you know, I don't think I came to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill. Um, so basically we, we do need God's law as a tool to help us to go back to Jesus. And the reason I say this is because it's a promise God's given to us. And it's something that um, Jesus, I think it was the secret to his life of holiness and of righteousness. And you see this in the book of Psalms, um, as far as, you know, God's law being something to help us. I, th I think that so many people look at God's law as like, oh, this is the law that condemns us and this is our enemy and we don't want God's law. But no, God's law is perfect. And it's something really beautiful and it's a helpful tool. God wouldn't have given us the Ten Commandments or his law if it wasn't for our good. And that's why you see in Psalms 19, verse 7, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And so we see God's law as a necessary tool to convert us, to change us in the right direction. Um, again, it doesn't save us. <laughs> Only Jesus can save us. But it's just a tool to help us. And then you see this in the life of Christ. Um, when you look in the book of Psalms, chapter 40, it's actually a messianic prophecy. Um, basically, um, it's a prophecy foretelling of Jesus. There's so many Psalms, like Psalms 22, that um, basically are prophecies about Jesus, the coming Messiah. And in Psalms chapter 40, in verse 8, it actually says something really, really cool about the heart of Jesus and what um, he was about. Um, so in Psalms chapter 40 and verse 8, it says, speaking of Jesus, like what he would be like. And Jesus says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And so the attitude that Jesus had was that he delighted to do the will of God. You know, it was kind of opposite to the experience you're reading about Paul, who's saying, you know, I want to do good, but I keep going back to doing bad things of the flesh. And he was struggling, you know, back and forth. But here we see Jesus saying, I delight to do your will because your law is where? It's in my heart. And what's very interesting is that this is actually the new covenant. This is the new covenant that Jesus promised to his people. And um, if you look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, I think this is the most clear. It, the Bible actually mentions it um, several times. But I think that um, Hebrews chapter 10, um, I personally just uh, think is... Um, a really nice place to see it in Hebrews 10 verse 16 
where it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Um, so basically, we need to be asking God to do the work in us is the problem. Because I feel like so many times as a Christian, I've tried to keep God's law or do what's right, you know, in my own strength, with my own whatever. And I ask God, God, just fill me with your spirit and just, you know, it should just work like magic. But the thing is, it, it doesn't. We need to be um, allowing God to write his law in our hearts. And the only way we can do that is by spending time with him, um, you know, spending time in his word. Like it says in Psalms 119 verse 11, it says, um, I have hid thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So we need to be spending time with God in his word, in his truth, and, you know, contemplating um, scripture and especially contemplating his law, thinking about these things. Because when our mind is set on these things, it's going to change us. And um, we're going to be able to have more victory because we've set us ourselves up for success. We haven't just, um, you know, gone to battle <laughs> without doing any preparation. Um, you know, I really think about, you know, the Christian walk. It, it is a battle. And I mean, I want to show that to you as well, as we see in scripture in Second Corinthians chapter 10. Um, but basically, you know, we're not just battling against whatever we're you know there's a devil out there and he wants to tempt us he doesn't want us to succeed he wants us to fall but you know through jesus christ we can be successful we can have victory and um the thing is i think so often we don't give that preparation the proper attention it deserves and i think that's why we end up you know forgetting you know the promises we've made to god or forgetting or you know just giving into you know, negative feelings that cause us to do or say or think things that are not, you know, right. And um, we really have to be fortifying our mind um, by filling our heart and our mind with the right kinds of things. And so you see this, um, I think the most clear in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses three and five, and I'll close with this. Um, and I pray that this will be a helpful tool for you um, it, as you um, choose to follow Jesus and um, find victory in him. He is, we have the victory in Jesus Christ. Um, and so again, second Corinthians chapter 10 verses three through five. And, uh, the apostle Paul says here, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So we're kind of talking about that earlier in the book of Romans that, you know, it's this battle between the flesh and the spirit, but it says, um, even though we walk in the flesh, we, we do not war according to the flesh because, you know, even though we're physical bodies and you know, what have you, you know, our war isn't a physical fight. It's a spiritual fight uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And this right here is key, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so again, it goes back to, you know, what are we putting in our hearts? What are we putting in our minds? Because in the Bible, the word mind and heart are basically interchangeable. Um, so basically, what are we putting in our heart? What are we putting in our mind to prepare ourselves against the battle that we face every day against sin and against selfishness? And basically, we have to be putting on spiritual um, armor. Like the, the Bible talks about uh, putting on the, the armor of God. And um, so, and it says, and the only weapon we have as an offense is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So again, we have to be 
taking God's word and especially his law, hiding it in our hearts, hiding it in our minds. And, um, you know, that way we're abiding in the mindset of Jesus. And uh, John chapter five says, you know, that basically we must abide in Christ. Jesus tells us, you know, apart from him, we can do nothing except as we abide in him and we stay connected to him. And we do that again by um, keeping his word, his law fresh in our minds um, so that when those, you know, sudden things come up in day-to-day life, you know, we're prepared to meet them because our minds are fortified in, um, in the arm of God and in his word. Um, Dear Wendy, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I wanted to look at this also from a, like a body physiology, psycho, psychobiology, I guess, I don't know exactly the name for it, but when you look at psychology, you look at biology, you look at the interplay between the two and how the nervous system develops from the time we're young and is, you know, we're, we're, our, our nervous system is constantly developing and we're being conditioned to respond to things in certain ways. And so the longer we go in those pathways, the more rigid that becomes the more set that becomes in in our in our in our brains and in our amygdala which is kind of this part of our brain that controls our our body's responses and so then when we come to understand these different truths from the bible as an adult and we're looking at these and we're like i don't I learned to operate a certain way, but I don't want to operate that way. I think this is where a lot of the struggle comes in. And the good news is that we can actually rewire our nervous system. It just takes time and effort and patience and persistence and training and cycle- And Holy Spirit. And well, <laughs> I'm getting there. Yeah. I mean, you you have to understand God's principles and then do the work internally to apply that and to retrain our bodies to do it. And so I I think from a um you know and 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 I really do think that uh Romans 8 actually goes into more of the how do we do this and Tina covered so much so beautifully from a lot of other verses as well. So I, I don't, I'm not going to repeat all that. Um, I had to restrain myself from saying amen many times. <laughs> there is, she brought so much good stuff together there. Um, but Great when we, well, when we combine that understanding with a deeper understanding of how our brains and our bodies develop and work and how to do that process of rewiring, when we're faced with these situations that we want to respond the old way, the not good way, the way that we know is not good. In these situations, it's important to just to pause for a moment and to reflect on what is governing us. What are we allowing to govern us? Are we allowing our ingrained nervous system that was trained one way to continue to control us, the body, the flesh, to continue to control us? Or are we going to look at the word of God and contemplate that in those situations and say, wait a minute, I'm choosing 
to follow the word of God here. I'm choosing to follow the spirit of God, even though it doesn't feel right to me, even though it feels, I feel violated by not responding the way I want to respond. Um, it, we have to pause and, and look. I mean, think about Christ at the cross in this moment. Did he retaliate against the people who were taking him there? He did not. He submitted himself to the will of God and so and to the spirit of God in that moment. In that, in the most torturous situation that any any person that's ever walked this earth has ever been through, he submitted himself to all of that so that we would be able to understand that this is possible and to submit ourselves to the will of God in whatever circumstances come up. And when we do that and we start to reprocess these things and start to look at it now from a new way of what is God's higher purpose in this? What is God's spirit about this situation? What does God want me to learn from this? We actually allow that reprogramming of our nervous system to happen. And so we, and we can begin to develop a whole new way of, of operating now, applying all of these principles that Paul has talked about, that Tina's covered with all these different verses from many different people in scripture. And so I think that is the piece that's, you know, it's, it's bringing that together and taking that time to focus and do that work that we have to do ourselves. Amen. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that because um, I think you put into words something I wasn't sure how to put into words. <laughs> um, just that submission, like you're saying, like when you, the only picture of it I can think of is, you know, when Jesus before, like you're saying before Calvary, you know, he just spent the whole night in prayer submitting to the will of God saying, not my will, but you, your will be done. And it, I don't think he got up off his knees until he had fully surrendered. And I feel like that's kind of part of that piece of, you know, it's, it's not just reading God's word and memorizing scripture, because that's not going to, you know, save you if you're not in the right spirit. Um, mm -hmm. But rather, when you take everything to God and, and give it to him and take that time to, um, you know, submit it to God, surrender it fully, let it go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and let God, you know, be the, the, the boss of your life or the king of your life. And, um, you know, definitely, that's where we can find you know, a, a new sense of, of peace and, um, just, you know, of, you know, that the allowing your brain to change in, in yeah. that direction. Cause I know I've seen yeah. that in my own life for sure. Cause anybody who's known me 20 years ago would not recognize me today. Um, and I, so I, I wanted that. to, I wanted to add to that too. One of the important elements of that, if you think about like, let's say that you, you're, your inclination is to fight back in a certain situation. Now, imagine for a moment that what you're about to fight against is literally the most powerful force in the universe. And you literally will, no matter how much you try to fight, you will lose because it's stronger than you. This is, to me, a really useful principle 
in in applying that submission. But I, if, I, I'm just a little concerned where this is going. Like you're you're right, but the thing is, if you approach this from a fear base, and I know you're not advocating for that, but I think someone hearing this might think you're saying like, do this out of fear because God is stronger than you. God could overpower you, and you're always going to fail if you don't have the right mindset. On, on this, which is understanding that God is love, and God outright tells us in in First John four four eighteen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So, really, what overpowers us if we let it is going to be love, and we need that love to overpower us to then cause us to do what we need to do, which is to love back. As as the very next verse says, First John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. And so we got to really get to know God, get to understand his love, let God love us, and then we can love God back, which is then love is the fulfillment of the law. That is, and it's only by this way that we really can do it. And it gets down to why. I mean, if you don't, why would you want to submit to God? Why would you want to obey God? Why would you want to hang out with God? Why would you want to live forever? The only reason I would think you ever would want to is because God is love and he really does love you and he really wants to just pour out infinite blessings upon you and, and let you live for eternity amongst many other people who also are going to follow the law of love. And so we could all love each other, love God, and it's going to be amazing. That's And this is the reason why we would want to do any of this. I completely agree. I don't think that's contradictory to what I'm yeah. saying, but I hear you. But yes, I think I it, wanted to give that caveat. And <laughs> I think it's really I, I completely agree with that. And to me, love is the most powerful force in the universe. But oftentimes when someone is fighting this, they're, you know, yes, they're missing that piece. They're missing the, the power of God's love. And sometimes you have to just if you're but if you're in that kind of like. You know not good way of responding mode, it may, you have to submit to receive that love. Yeah. And I just want to be clear what people yeah. were submitting to receive. Yes. And if you do that out of fear or obligation, you're going to fail. You're going to fall back mm -hmm. to the old you that's a sinner. And that's what kept happening to Israel. Israel kept falling and they said, you know, yes, whatever you say we will do. And of course, then they never did it. And as Tina was talking about, the new covenant is just submitting to God and letting God write the law on our heart, letting God take care of it, letting God uh, to will and to do his own pleasure, pleasure within us. That, mm -hmm. that is the New Testament. That's why it's so much better. That's why the new covenant is better than the old one. I see Olivia is saying hello, and she's saying amen. <laughs> she, she said amen when when Jay started speaking. So thank you, Olivia. We appreciate your comments you. and we appreciate you again visiting us again. We love having you with us. All right. Um, was there yeah, anything else or should we move on? I think we covered that one pretty well. All right. I think we have time for maybe one. Oh, yeah. If we do them quick. All right. Let's get that next uh, question out. This up. is a long one. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, yeah. so so France is asking, in spite of what happened in the Garden of Eden, have Adam and Eve been saved, and are they in heaven now? It's funny how the long questions have short answers, and the short questions <laughs> have long answers. Theme tonight. <laughs> so, okay, so kind of two-parters to this one. 
uh, are Adam and Eve saved? Uh, I don't think we have anywhere in the Bible where it exactly says that. And Tina, if I'm wrong, let me know. But I haven't looked at every uh, referral to Adam and Eve, and there's nothing about them. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but if you look at some hints, you could see that um, you know Abel was a good person. He is righteous. We're told that in Hebrews. And then to after he was killed by Cain, Seth came and replaced him. Seth was a replacement, and um, and after Seth, it says uh, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's Genesis four twenty six, and that that oh, name of the Lord. We're coming back to that. People are now starting to really have a relationship with God, getting to know Him, get closer to Him. This is uh, to me a good indication that Adam may have done his, done some good work trying to keep his sons as many as he, as he could in the faith, knowing God. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there's good things for Jesus. I'm sorry, for Adam. And in fact, we're told Genesis 5, 3, that Adam lived 139 years and then begot a son in his own likeness after his image, his image and named him Seth. So it's not telling us that I hear that Seth just looks like Adam. I believe it's really telling us that Seth took on, took on the character, personality, um, just the, how Adam was as a person, Seth was very much like that. And so we know Seth was a good person. His lineage was the the lineage that led to uh, the lineage of righteousness, you could call it, that you know led up to Enoch and, and Noah and ultimately to Abraham. So this is uh, a good sign again for Adam, I would say. So where is Adam now? It, he, he and Eve, are they in heaven? Well, let's see. Genesis 5, 5, it says, So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Does it say then he, and then he went to heaven? It just says, and he died. Romans 5, 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. So death reigned from Adam. You're going to see Adam is always associated with death. 1 Corinthians 5, sorry, 15, 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, and in Christ all shall be made alive. See, so, so here it says we die because of what Adam did. So Adam's dead, and then Abel died, and then Seth died, and everybody has been dying. And then Christ has broken that cycle, and Christ now brings us to life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so you might die, but someday you will live again. Um, this is John eleven twenty five, 25. And is Jesus here saying that we, you know, if we die, he'll immediately, um, you know, call us into heaven, we'll be a floating spirit. I would say no, because then what's the point of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection? Why would there be a resurrection then if we're going to be in heaven anyway as a spirit? Um, in fact, Jesus gives us a hint of what death really is like. In first, sorry, in, in the Gospel of John, um, chapter 11, starting at verse 11, it says, And after that, he, Jesus, said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. 
However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to, th to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So here Jesus associates death with like being asleep. You know, when you're asleep, I mean, I have intense dreams, but maybe not everybody does. Some people, you go sleep, boom, you're totally out. Um, and this language of sleep is not unique to Jesus. Like if you read the Old Testament, first, for example, 1 Kings 2, verse 10, it says, so David rested with his fathers. And you think, well, maybe he was still in bed. No, next, next part, and was buried in the city of David. And 1 Kings 11, 43, it says, Then Solomon rested with his fathers. And what are the fathers doing then? They're resting too, by implication. And was buried in the city of David, his father. So, and, and you could go on and on. Look at almost all the kings. They rested, they rested, they rested. This is, this is what the Bible is using to refer to uh, sleep, um, death. Um, now, we, have, we know another person who has died, right? And uh, let's test to see where he is. We're told where he is. This is Acts 2, uh, starting at verse 29. It's about David, King David. And Peter speaking, it says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. Right? So we were told uh, you know, earlier he's resting. Well, he's dead. Um, Part of Peter and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Next verse, he says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that is the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. So notice Christ didn't float in his spirit, go up to heaven. It says, No, he was resurrected. That's how Christ did it, that his soul would not be left in Hades. If you um, really research what Hades means, uh, the NIV does a better job translating it. It might say like the grave or the, the realm of the dead. You know, it's not, not heaven. It's more like the earth. Um, Nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God has raised up. And then if you skip to verse 34, it says, For David did not ascend into heaven. David did not ascend into heaven. So David is dead. He's in his tomb. His body is probably fully decayed now, let's say. And his spirit is not in heaven. I mean, this whole concept is not really a biblical one. And I, I know we have so many verses on this. You say, well, what about this verse? What about that verse? Please ask. Ask and we can answer. Um, but if you let's go back to Adam. Uh, Genesis 2.17 it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and a breath of the breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Not I, I don't like how the King James says a living soul, because <laughs> then you start thinking, well, what's a soul? NIV also better translates that as a living being. He's just he's alive, a living creature. So so dust, um, matter, physical matter, carbon, you know, all the stuff that makes us up, plus the breath of life is a living, breathe, living breathing being. That's what, uh, we, that's what the Bible teaches. 
And you know, Jesus or God later says, uh, you know, when you die, you know, to dust you shall return. Uh, Genesis 2, 16 to 17. Here's an, another interesting thing about the story of Adam. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and, e and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did Jesus say you will become a spirit and then maybe you'll suffer forever or whatever it is? No, it just says you will surely die. And 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 that's important. Um, and also, we just looked here about a tree, right? There's a tree of knowledge, um, but that wasn't the only tree. God had also planted the tree of life. Uh, Genesis 2, 8 to 9, it says, God had planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put a man, he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground of the Lord made every tree to grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's these two special trees. Why do you think the one tree was called the tree of life? What might its function be? Give life? Life. Yeah, it gives life. And, and this becomes very important. Uh, like after Adam and Eve sinned, God kicks them out of the garden and he says, um, Genesis 3, 22, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden to till the ground. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life so god kicked adam and eve out of eden to cut them off from the tree of life so that they would not live forever implication here is by eating the fruit of the tree of life that they would live forever and ever and it, but you know as if you keep continually eating the tree and it's interesting as we come to revelation God now starts promising that his righteous will gain access to the tree of life again. So Revelation 22, verse 2, says, In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore the 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every year, every, every month. Um, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. And Revelation 22, 14, so just a, a couple chapters down, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the holy city. So there's nothing intrinsic in us that lets us live forever and ever. Uh, Romans 6.23, as it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is a gift, an ongoing gift. And the tree of life is a reminder of our continual dependence of God and his continual provision for us. Uh, and to me, it's, it's so beautiful. It helps, again, this is another way God helps keep us humble and remi reminds us that we are not immortal beings like he is. In fact, uh, you know, the, the Bible clearly says, 1 Timothy 6, 15, uh, or sorry, verse 16, that only God is the one who has immortality. It says, who alone has immortality. 
we don't have immortality. And this notion that if we die, we then our spirit, you know, we don't really die. Where does this come from? Where does it come from? If we go back to Genesis 3, right? It says, uh, Genesis 3 verse 2 says, And the woman said to the serpent, serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God is says, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of your eyes, you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the question is, we're, we're just like in the same position as Eve. Are we going to believe that snake? Are we going to believe the serpent? Or are we going to believe what the Bible is telling us? Are you, are you going to believe the serpent that we don't die? That we have eternal spirits that will go somewhere and, and exist for and ever and ever as spirits? Or do we believe what the Bible says, which we do die, our bodies can die, they could decompose, we don't know anything when we're, we're dead, we're just like asleep. And someday God, Christ, who is, who is the resurrection and life, will come and will call us to be with them again. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, in this way, we shall always be with the Lord. Resurrected bodies is how we will be with the Lord. So, hope that is helpful to you. Thank you for asking, uh, France. And any other comments there, Tina? I think you covered it very well. <laughs> I was just like, quote First Thessalonians four. <laughs> that was your <laughs> closing verse. So I was, I was like yeah, spot yeah. on. That's what I would have, you know, definitely shown because. Like you're saying, death is asleep, as the Bible says throughout the Bible. I mean, look, the book of Psalms, Ecclesiastes, everywhere, um, throughout the Bible, Jesus, all, we all call, they all call death sleep. And um, so when you're dead, you're asleep. And when Jesus comes, you, if you're, you know, in Christ, you will wake up to the resurrection of life. And those um, later who did not accept Christ, they are, you know, part of the second resurrection, as it says, revelation to the resurrection of damnation. And so we want to be part of that first resurrection where Jesus is the one waking us up to go to, with him to heaven. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. Adam and Eve, not in heaven right now. <laughs> Only some people had the special resurrection or were translated, but um, we don't see any record or any indication of that for Adam and Eve. Yep. Nope. And Diana suggests that we uh, check out a, a song. There's a little video link there. So. There was, yeah, that was the last one where we're talking about God's law oh, being okay. written in our hearts. Yeah, that's oh, a really nice okay. song. Thank you, Diana, for sharing that. It's a beautiful song. Um, it's I don't want to sing. 
I'm not the greatest singer, but basically it's basically saying, write them on my heart, talking about God's law. Mm. Really beautiful one. So thank you for Diana for reminding us of that beautiful song. Um, so I know we're out of time. I know we still have another question, but I, I think we'll have to table it till next week. So we want to thank everybody for joining us. And thank you, everyone who submitted their great questions tonight. We had some really great discussion. And all those that made comments, we appreciate you um, tuning in and giving us your thoughts as well. We want to remind everybody, if you want to formally submit your question to our live show, uh, be sure to go to our website, BibleAsk.org forward slash live. And we would love to have your question um, featured on our show where we can answer it for you. And again, um, we're live every week, uh, Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So be sure to um, uh, check us out again next week and invite your friends and family. And um, uh, be sure to, you know, if you have questions or comments that come in anytime on our live show, we're more than happy to receive them and, and talk to you, our audience. And um, be sure to like us and share our content. We really appreciate you, um, you know, being a blessing to us by uh, sharing this content. Our whole purpose, um, we are, you know, volunteers here for Bible Ask. We just do this because we love God. We want to share his word. And so we just pray that um, this is, can be a tool for you uh, to bless others and share God's word with those around you. And um, just uh, by God's grace, you know, spread his gospel so that we can see Jesus come soon and take us home. Uh, so before we close, though, we'll say a quick word of prayer. Uh, Jay or Wendy, you want to pray for us? Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for this Sabbath and this time to spend with you, to draw near to you, and to get to know you more, to get to know your, your character more, and to uh, receive your spirit into, you know, into the deeper parts of our, of our, our soul, our body, um, our being, Lord. And uh, we just ask that you will be with each person this evening and throughout the weekend and the week ahead and uh, help us each to know your love in a deeper way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. And again, uh, we hope to see you again next week, Pacific Standard Time, 6 p.m. Friday night. God bless everybody. Bye.